and welcome to another episode of Horror Homeroom Conversations. I'm Elizabeth Irwin. I'm Gwen Hoffman. I'm Don Keeley. And on today's episode, Love Hurts, as we look at the 1981 Canadian slasher My Bloody Valentine, as well as its 2009 3D American remake, Quintessential Slashers. These films demonstrate that although the tropes may remain the same, there is a generational divide in how they are deployed. We're celebrating Valentine's Day the way it was intended on this episode, with blood, gore, and a perfectly placed body in a dryer. So stay tuned. Okay, so let's kick things off with the IMDb recap of the 1981 George Mahalka. I think I'm saying that right, <laughs> original. According to IMDb, a decades-old folktale surrounding a deranged murderer killing those who celebrate Valentine's Day turns out to be true to legend when a group defies the killer's order and people start turning up dead. This contrast against the Patrick Lussier 2009 IMDb description that says... Tom returns to his hometown on the 10th anniversary of the Valentine's Night Massacre that claimed the lives of 22 people. Instead of a homecoming, Tom finds himself suspected of committing the murderers. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and it seems like his old flame is the only one who believes he's innocent. And we had to go to IMDb because there's no way I could have recapped either one of those films. No, definitely not. Definitely so which not. one did we like better? I'll start, I guess. Jump right in there. Feel like, so uh, uncharacteristic of, of my typical, I did not prefer the 80s film, but I feel like it, you'll understand why. When you, If you watch the, the remake, you have a lot more gratuitous sex. <laughs> you have a And that's lot a point more, in its favor, right? Yeah, okay. you have a lot more gratuitous kills. I mean, these are great. Like in the first couple you know, minutes, what, somebody's eye comes out with a pickaxe? Like, yeah. it's, it's it's pretty good. I, I was like, whoa, it's starting already. <laughs> <Yes, laughs> yes. Like, literally minutes into the film and eyeballs are like, popping at you. Dude is staring at you face to face on the screen next thing you know. And he's just laughing and talking because he had just been pretending to be the minor. And next thing you know, just boop, his eyes are flying out at you, which is good, you know. That, that, so I think that that kind of trumped an 80s film. And I got to say, the original was not a good 80s film. Like, it just, it there was nothing that really worked for it. You, I don't know, maybe it. No, I'm not, I'm not even going to say anything negative about Canada because I have no no you know ill will to Whoa, Canada. Black, black Black Christmas. Yeah, I was going to say I have Canada, no ill will to Canada. So like it's it's not it even their fault. The yeah. It really one. just missed the mark. Blood and guts went out. I guess that's where my line in the sand with the '80s is. Okay, I liked both of them actually to a certain degree. I liked the 1981 version more, and I think I I give it the edge because the 2009 version was just too convoluted it got too caught up in the plot and it just got there was too much to keep track of um, for instance in the imdb description that liz gave it entirely misses out the opening and what happened a year before the massacre in the hospital which is like crucial like the ac you know the accident in the mine that started it all and yeah. you can't get all of those layers into like a simple description. So the 2009 one lost me a bit because it was so convoluted. But I love the 1981 version, and we'll talk more about this, but I thought it was like a slasher with class consciousness. Yeah, it's been a long day, so having trouble talking. Yeah, so I like the 1981 way better. I actually love that movie. I know. Look at the faces. They're so perplexed. 
I think because you really sort of get the camaraderie among the characters, and it actually felt like a slasher in that respect. Like, there was a network of relationships, mm-hmm. and I was invested in more than just one or two characters. Whereas with the remake, all the reasons that you love it are the reasons I disliked it. I like spectacle, and I love blood and guts, but yeah. it just felt like it was just too much. And so it stopped having meaning. And honestly, I could have lived my entire life with seeing a woman, like, you know, butt-ass naked, in heels, <laughs> running for her life, and then literally getting eviscerated, you know, on a bed frame. <laughs> yeah. Or behind a bed frame, so it looked like a cage. A cage. Yeah. yeah. And how many minutes exactly was yes. she naked and I running swear. around in the parking lot, naked, running around in the hotel But don't forget, it was like 3D. Yeah. So yeah. I'm dying to know <laughs> if there's any aspect of that that was 3D of five. But it felt like forever. I know. It was so uncomfortable because you guys know where I was when I was watching it. Like, so like, and here's the funny thing about it too. So I went back to the plot summary because kind of to Dawn's point when you were talking about how the plot was so convoluted. I, I liked the 2009 version because some of the character development was there and I thought I kind of understood the film until I came here and we were like, oh wait. I, I think we missed a couple things. Yeah. So I went, you know, to, to the Wikipedia page two and I was looking at the plot to try and better understand it. And yo, the paragraph describing even that scene with the blonde in the motel in the cage, you know, who's <laughs> naked or whatever, is like triple the length of any other paragraph in the whole entire summary. <laughs> well, so, it does stand out. <laughs> it, yeah. Yeah. It it was easily a good it probably what, you think, ten minutes? I mean, it felt like longer. I would say at least 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. I think so. From that start, sounds about right. From, from start to brutal finish. But there was something just endearing about the characters in the original that was like completely lacking for me in the remake. And I think it was because it really does just center on like the three characters primarily. The first one, I actually did empathize with all of the characters. And it sort of made sense to me why the killer did yeah. what he did and, yeah. like, how he became. I couldn't get past TJ's Scooby-Doo outfit. Like, Freddy from Scooby-Doo. You know Fred from Scooby-Doo? Yeah, I couldn't... I, <laughs> I really had a hard time with TJ in the original. But that's part of the charm. For me, that was part of the charm. Like, of course I loved, it was. Of course it was. Yes, I love the fact, like, when they're leaving the mining shaft, that there's sort of, like, this Keystone cop montage. Like, they're all running and jumping into their trucks, and they're... It was so ridiculous, and I'm like, this is why I like horror movies. I yeah. want to see ridiculous, stupid stuff like that. I agree. I so, know. It's actually like really it. funny that you mentioned Scooby-Doo, because there was a part of the 1981 film, like, I think... Yeah, near the end of the film, a couple of the main characters are in one of those trolley train things that run on tracks up and down the mines, and the killer jumps on the back and he's of going the from trolley car to and car. he's walking toward the front of the car. I swear that's in a Scooby-Doo episode, <laughs> one of the originals. I was in Scooby-Doo, yeah. for sure. It's classic. Gave me great longing for Scooby-Doo. <laughs> But so, shall we? Let's talk about the 1981 version then, and sort of break it down a little bit. Talk about why we, what it's doing, why we liked it, why we didn't like it. I mean, it does have a classic slasher structure, Mm -hmm. right? In that we have the opening in which there's a mining explosion and. Six people get trapped in the mines. Yep. And six weeks later, they manage to unbury them. And one of the miners is still alive. 
and he's chomping on an arm. <laughs> Which is a great scene. That was yeah. a good scene. Is, I'll give yes. you that. So it, it appears he stayed alive by eating his fellow trapped miners. Which differs from the remake where the Harry Warden myth is because he deliberately stole the air. Yeah. So it he seems like there was to more. Get their air. Right. Because I was just even thinking about how, yeah, they, it removes the whole the blame of the supervisors. Because wasn't it the supervisors? It was in the, the, first su- one? the two supervisors in the first one were supposed to check on things before they go to the Valentine's Day party in the, the ta- town hall, but they don't. And there's the methane levels rise and there's an explosion. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a I mean, it's a class thing and that the supervisors here go off to their parties. So the miners bear the burden of the explosion. And I thought like running throughout the, the film was this sense that the working class, well, are kind of victimized. Um, yeah, they really do sort of stress the class thing. I think yeah. um, I was noticing like the banjos playing and then the harmonica um, and all oh, of the yeah. scenes. And I'm like, it's so interesting how those instruments are used to sort of position a certain class. And I think, too, the fact that they escape, quote unquote, into their pickup trucks. When you, yeah. If you think about it, so like the outcome of, you know, in the 81 one is so this terrible thing happens on Valentine's Day and, you know, you've got this bad guy, you know, that results from it and so on and so forth. Harry so, Warden. Yeah, yeah, Harry Warden. So then the outcome is, is the town says we're going to eliminate the dance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then again, that kind of goes back to class, too, because even though it was the superv- it was the neglect of the supervisors that started all of this, the people that are punished is the people that would be at that dance. Yeah. And that's seemingly, you know, a lot of the working class kind of families. Right. Um, Or at least their kids that would have been at that. Yeah. Because it is, like, I I noticed when they finally resume the Valentine's Day dance 20 years later, and this is when Harry Warden comes back and starts stalking them, like, it's telling that the dance is at the Union Hall. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, this is, it's clearly like, it's the centerpiece of the town. It's where everyone goes. And it's, it's also where, you know, they're unionized, demand better wages, better conditions. And they're not, it's like a mingling of young and old people. Like, mm-hmm. I thought it was really striking that this My Bloody Valentine isn't just about killing teenagers. That's or, a good point. Really not yeah. even... The laundromat person is the next one to go, right? Yeah, Mabel, yeah. who's who's older. I don't know why Harry Warden killed her. Um, and he killed an older man, too. Too much starch? I don't know. Well, <laughs> well he... <laughs> I think he killed Mabel because she was the one sort of pushing to have the Valentine's Day dance. dance. And he said, don't have the dance. And then I think he killed the other guy because he literally came to where Harry was. Yeah. And I think if he had just stayed at the bar, he would have been fine. But because he was the one warning all the teens not to have the party because he believed in the myth of Harry Warden. He was like the old harbinger. Yeah, well, I have the tropes that I would love to go through because I do think it's doing something pretty cool. But it's interesting, too, and I didn't really think about that change when it comes to class because then you go to the remake in 2009, and now no longer are they at a union hall. They're they're having, like, their hangout in the mine. In the mine, yeah. And Tom owns the the joint. Yeah, he owns it, yeah. So that completely kind of removes some of that class class consciousness or clash consciousness. (laughs) 
Either or. one. Yeah. They both work. I'm flexible. <laughs> okay, so let's go through the tropes. Yeah. Because yes, I am dying. Yes, I'm dying. Literally, I am. I don't know. I'm just thinking about tropes a lot. But I, I think I think I. I mean, I just mentioned one, right? Where there's a prior traumatic event mm-hmm. on a holiday, preferably, and then you know, <laughs> on that same holiday, years later, they have to pay for whatever the trauma was. The town has to pay. Yeah. Although in thinking through the trauma, like I think the original film's trauma makes more sense. So you come to find out the killer actually witnessed his father being killed by By Harry Harry Warden. Warden. And so that sort of triggered something. Whereas in the remake, I'm confused. I'm really not sure. (laughs) I mean, he was just guilty. 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 I mean, it seems extreme, though, because usually if you're going to be triggered like that, it does happen earlier in youth and he was already he had to have been in his 20s by that point i don't know that i was even on the fence about because i told you like yeah when he emerges 10 years later in the 2009 <laughs> film the, the guy the guy from supernatural straight up looks like he's 18 so yeah. i'm like what was he eight when he was accused of <laughs> always perpetrating like this trauma upon the town i don't I, think they were thinking big picture with yeah <laughs> i was makeup. i was guessing 18 19 at the beginning and then 28 29 later on I guess. That might work. And then we'll we'll have to end with the crescendo about dis- the discussion about the mask. Oh, yeah, for sure. So that'll come after our tropes, though. Yes. Okay, so we touched upon one, and that was objectification. So in the original, all you get are breasts, right? <laughs> you, you get a good, well, there are solid other parts shot. Too. And they opened with it. Right. They open with it. They open with it, but it's it not... It was like piranha, almost. <laughs> like when they just get naked and dive into the toxic pool. Like, But it was definitely shot as more like intentional titillation, I think, than the remake, which was just... I don't even know what that was. Because like we said, it was at least 10 minutes of her just butt-ass naked yeah. running Can I just say stops? I had a total Beavis and Butthead moment when you, when you said Heels. titillation? I just... <laughs> It, like, I just... <laughs> in her stilettos, yes, that is true. But what do you think the difference is in the objectification, or is there? Like, does it matter if it's a longer time and that you get the full Monty as opposed to something that's relatively quick in the it, beginning? In the first film? I don't even remember that in the first film. What she happened? was doing her striptease um, in the very, very opening scene. Yeah. Who's she? Just some random chick he brought down Blonde. into the mind. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, okay. she was... Doing yeah. like a little dancey dance, and then he pickaxed her. He <laughs> As her. one does, right? <laughs> now, I, I wondered what the heck that scene was about. Mm-hmm. It is one of, I think it's Vera Dyka. It's one of her tropes that the film has to start with a dead woman. And so she has absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the plot or mm. any plot ever, but she has to die. And she sort of undoes a little bit of it, too, because if he's pissed off about Valentine's Day and yeah. the party, what does she have to do with it? Yeah. Other than she's what got a she heart tattoo. That That's was what she it. was just saying. She was like she had a heart tattoo. And I was yeah. Like, oh, yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's part of the party, though. So I don't know what his motivation. Like, he's just going to stalk people who have heart tattoos. He, he, want, he needed a heart. Oh, to get things started. I mean... Because he doesn't he send somebody pretty soon after that, like the sheriff or something. Yeah, the yeah. Town, yeah. Uh, to box warn of chocolates yes. with a heart in it. That's a repeated motif. <laughs> but um, you know, had to get a heart from somewhere. So it's I think it's just a random that is stranger. Very true. But do you think it functions differently? Like yes, yeah. 
but why? When you think about it, <laughs> I was. I think it does too. But I just didn't even know. In, so this the first one was released in eighty one. So yes. it was in production before that. Mm-hmm. Even for that time period, I don't think it would have been that mind blowing. A for a horror film to have a, you know a woman's breasts, right? And B for to just see a woman's breasts at that time period. Like I don't think it would have been that radical, shocking, titillating. <laughs> any of that, uh, but I think that, and you know what? Even when you, they would show like um, the act of sex, it it was really benign. I think in the first film. See, that's so interesting because I thought in the first one it was more eroticized than in the second one. Even though she's completely naked, and we see it for such a long period oh, of it time. Not, yeah, you know, we at least see her trying to fight back. She's not competent, mind you, but I mean, she did have a couple of. Oh, the second one it was moves. just soft corn poor. Soft porn, poor, soft, poor, soft. I can't do it. I'm done for the day. Soft. Some skinemax action. Not porn. Talk today. No. This is so weird. And editing is going to be so much fun. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna have some soft corn porn tonight. <laughs> that is crazy. But it was straight up just soft core porn. <laughs> Let me just repeat that slowly. <laughs> and it was drawn out. So even the length of time. Yeah. The shots. And I mean they straight up made her they tried to make her look stupid. Like they yeah. troped her out. Like you had said the strappy shoes, barely able to walk, throws a gun at some guy because she can't <laughs> figure out how to load it. You know, and then she even seemed shocked when she hit him with it. She was like, yeah. "Oh." <laughs> and then she just stumbles back and crawls under a bed. Like <laughs> really? And, but then how how much of an idiot is the miner, too? It's like he couldn't even get her through the mattress frame for a while. So that's the other thing that I feel like added to it. Unless he was just trying to... Oh, he was probably just toying with her. Yeah, that's true. So. But what about the woman who comes in and gets it? That was such a bizarre scene. <laughs> it really was. That's like your mom walking in on you having sex. Like, it was right, just so weird. Right, It just seems... And you see her, like, with her cat, pictures of her cats in the background. It just was bizarre. But I felt like it was trying to say something. Although, what? I have no idea. But that's why I enjoyed that that version of the film. <laughs> that was a good moment, actually. <laughs> it, it, it did. It, it was. It was. I feel like you were moving toward explaining what that actually meant. Um, so don't stop yourself. No. <laughs> I feel like maybe even the directors realized that that scene had gone on way too long and it was super awkward. So if we're going to continue showing this naked woman, then we better kill somebody in between. <sighs> See, I would have thought just the opposite. It was probably another Beavis and Butthead moment where they're sitting in front of the director's port and they're like, hey, you know it would be really fun? Let's bring another chick into it. A woman who likes cats? Yeah, a woman who likes cats. <laughs> I, I imagine mean, that discussion's going somewhere else when you said let's bring another chick into it. <laughs> that would have been a whole other film. <laughs> it would have no longer been softcore porn. <laughs> <laughs> there are ele- I'm not going there. <laughs> Should we go to the next trope? Yes, let's do that. Okay, we'll I'll go. See what else I can mess up. Well, but do we? Was there any other objectification of women in the first one? Because I was. I don't think so. Yeah. I think that was the sole moment. I think yeah, that's I think why it right. stood out yeah. to me. Because I, I thought it was kind that, and maybe this is why you didn't like it, Gwen. The 1981 version was sort of restrained. And I, I guess yeah. the, the moment it really struck me was when the group of teens, I guess, they were late teens, early 20s. They weren't that young. Go down into the mine. You know, they take the party down in the mine and a couple goes off into some weird room where all the suits are hanging to have sex. Yeah. 
and um, I forgot about that. the killer comes in and hangs the girl up on a hook, but you you don't see it. Yeah, like the camera cuts away. But that was a good unlike scene. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. It, it was a it was a pretty suspenseful scene. Because even I was watching that, I was like, oh, one of them's gonna drop down. I was like, one of them's gonna mm-hmm. drop down. Don't know which, but it's gonna drop down. <laughs> So yeah, that, that, was, you know. that was a good scene. I forgot about that. So maybe you liked it a little more than you thought. No. <laughs> no. Okay. Well, <laughs> nope. I, I don't know why. I see. I guess for that one, I almost felt like the plot was a little convoluted to me. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Or maybe it's just that it was so slow. Yeah. But without good character development, I don't know. Like I'll give you that they had that you know kind of coherence or whatever that you were talking that kind of bond between characters yeah. in the first one. But I think the lack of character, like character development, and the, the pace it just made it a little bit. And it was restrained. Definitely restrained. <laughs> yeah. So we have the Harbinger of Doom. I love a good Harbinger of Doom. I don't yeah. care. But in the original, it's the bartender, right? And he's this old sort of yeah. wizened dude who warns the kids away from going and having the dance and yeah. is saying, you know, you have to honor this myth because it's true. Whereas in the remake... He's like, the town is a curse. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that. He's, he's a great harbinger. <laughs> yeah. But in the remake, there's no need for that because everything is contextualized for us, the viewer, by virtue of newsreels, video footage that gives the context of the story. So it completely takes sort of that older authority figure presence yeah. out of the mix. And I was curious if you guys had any thoughts about why slashes have moved that way, like why we no longer want to hear from Maybe the old white dude telling us to honor the past as opposed to now we can just watch it on newsreels. And mm. it's like a different authority yeah. figure. So like you're saying in the first one, the, the the guy who's warning them is in the bar and seems to have been personally involved with the thing that went on or mm-hmm. he was in the town. Whereas in the second one, we just get all the news stories. Change in authority figures, yeah. I guess. I don't know. From sort of the town patriarch, however crazy he may be, to the news media. Yeah. Yeah. And it it, it also kind of speaks to, like, a historical memory, too. So you Mm -hmm. you had some length of memory and respect for the past and, you know... With the older the um, older gentleman and just okay, he it was generational wisdom, Mm -hmm. and then think about our attention span as time has gone. So now it's gone to the news, and they you know things like that, and and that's exactly. And these days too, it's not even the news; it's you know memes. Yeah, like people literally find out that we're you know having attacks on other countries because of memes. No, I think you're absolutely dead right because it's an internal sort of warning, like when. In the original, it's a part of the community, right? So it's a part of that class consciousness. Mm -hmm. Whereas that's completely taken out in the remake. And instead, it's outsiders telling you how to feel and what the story is and framing it for you. And I think it does something. That newswoman reminded me of, what's her name, Gail in in Scream. Scream. Yeah. 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 Like, I wonder if they were just trying to... I don't know. But it wasn't even, like, one cohesive news story. It was all, like, the little blurbs and... Yeah, it was broken up, fragmented. And it's also interesting... I hadn't thought about this, but in the 2009 film, when we sort of arrive in present time... Well, for one thing, it's not as long. Like, Mm -hmm. we have the original incident in the mine. Mm -hmm. One year later, Harry Warden goes nuts and kills, like, 22 people (laughs) in the hospital. And then 10 years later... Mm -hmm. And even though it's only 10 years later, not 20, like in the 1981 version, everyone's like, oh, we should just forget about it. Oh, it doesn't matter anymore. Like Axel in particular is just sort of saying, like, 
forget about it. We got to move on. Yeah. Uh, so it's like yeah. in 2009, things happen quickly. Get over it. Yeah. yeah. That's a good point. Where is it? I mean, the first one, there's no media in the first Mm-mm. film in 1981. Mm-hmm. And I, that's one of the things I liked about it. Like the whole community gathers in the bar. Yeah. And then the whole community gathers in the union hall. And it's totally cross generation. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, teenagers to people who are clearly in their 70s. And, and they're part of a shared community. Speaking to even just like the authority, because I know we started with the Harbinger and stuff like that. But do you see a change in the way they depicted the police officers? Oh, absolutely. So in the original, you have Mayor Hannigan and Chief Newby. And I thought it was really striking that within the narrative of the original, they referred to them by their profession. So it was always Mm -hmm. Chief Newby or Mayor Hannigan, like giving him that title and giving that title authority. Whereas in the remake, and they're borderline ineffectual, I would say, because they decide not to let the town know that the killer has reappeared because they don't want to worry anyone. It's like in Jaws, right? Yeah, right, but yeah. also sort yeah, of the like hubris Jaya, of that, but... right? Of thinking, well, we can protect them. They don't need to know and be able to protect themselves. We can protect them. Yeah. Whereas in the original or the remake, the potential killer is the authority figure. So I think that does something interesting like, hey, we're going to look at the police and now the police could be the one that we should be afraid of. And that has yeah. a lot of sociopolitical context behind it, yeah, I think. That's a good point. And that does sort of harken back to Scream, I think, where the first Scream definitely suggests that first the older cop and even Dewey might be the killer. Yeah. So there's that definite loss of any faith in authorities. Do they get killed in the end? I don't think they do. No, the mayor and the... No, they they live live to tell the tale. And in the 2009 one, like, I think they get killed, right? Well, the one, the old detective does because he takes the... I guess it was a shovel to the throat. But I also wanted to talk about, because you had mentioned the spectacle and how you really liked that there was like more carnage, more blood. So in the original, you have Mabel's death. And Mabel's the older lady, and she dies in her laundromat. And it's a great kind of scene because you see the police officer come in, and he's sort of literally sniffing out the joint. Like you could tell there's something in the air. And he finally finds Mabel's body in one of the dryers and it's a grotesque scene but it's like a shocking grotesque and what i liked about it is that it didn't really focus on the spectacle of her it was more her terror that i think drew you in like you saw like she was actually afraid and that's i felt like it was palpable whereas in the remake it's like yeah blood and guts and I guess it really does show the difference in special effects and like how special effects have kind of, in my opinion, ruined the classic slasher film. You would disagree with that. But yeah, I just clutched my pearls. I know. I just I like I mean, although I like a good, you know, guy's face going into hot dog water. I mean, that's (laughs) we have got to review that movie. (laughs) That's that's all right. But like for me, it's not about the terror. It's about the gore. Wait, you, you guys were referring to Sleepaway Camp there? When he, yeah, yeah. Oh, you, oh, there's a because scene it though. happens, yeah. and it, it happens in My this. Bloody Valentine yeah. too. I was, I was just wondering which one came first. It also first. happens in Scream Queens, the TV show. Ryan Murphy. Yes. Yeah. When did when was Sleepaway Camp? Was it was that eighty one? Wasn't it? I think also? it was same year. Was that a thing? We just put people's head in hot dog water. <laughs> I mean, listen, <laughs> you gotta go somewhere. <laughs> Not get a snack on your ways. way out. It's all good. <laughs> 
Oh, the location. So typically, I love the location. Yeah, yeah typically in like slasher films, you stay situated yeah. in one area, right? But I thought the remake was kind of interesting in that it starts outside of the town that you're ultimately going to go to. And just that moving, it made it feel like the killer could be anywhere as opposed to in the original where the killer is very firmly entrenched in one area. And I think it's scarier to think yeah. it could be anywhere and lurking anywhere. So that was a point for your remake. But that's it. <laughs> that's all I'm giving you. That's all I get? That's it. Yeah, because then you think about the original, you're like, why don't people just move? <laughs> I just loved the mines themselves. Yeah. Um, and they were filmed, both of them were filmed on location at actual abandoned mines. Huh, I was wondering that. Yeah, the the first one in was in Nova Scotia at a mine that closed in 1975. And guess what great state <gasps> the 2009 film was filmed in? West Virginia. Oh. Pennsylvania? Ah. <laughs> What's so good about West Virginia? I don't know. I was just thinking about mines. <laughs> I wasn't thinking about like all of like Nanticoke and Cold Town and all that stuff. I was just thinking about mines. Somewhere out west, I think. I think just around <laughs> Pittsburgh. I'm, the wheels I'm have come off. I'm a thousand today. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess I just thought in 1981 they made way better use of the mine. And and for yeah. me, like one one of the best scenes. Well, for one thing, in the 1981 film, they're still working in the mines. Yeah. Like I really yeah. like the fact mm-hmm. that the whole group of uh, younger men in the town. We see them coming out of the mine with, like, their dirty faces Mm -hmm. at one point. They're all working down there. And they take the girls down there to sort of show them what it's like. And I think one girl says at one point, I can't believe you work down here. But by 2009, I feel like the mine has just become... It's, it's like an amusement park. I mean, they just yeah. go down there to party. To party. Yeah. Yeah. Strictly. I mean, they party down there in the first film, but it's also very clear... Like, we work here, it's dangerous, mm-hmm. you know, that's lime on the walls, methane, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you know, yeah. explaining, stuff. too, like, why it's on the walls for the wood to yeah. make sure it doesn't break down. I did, yeah. That is a good point. I did like that. Yeah, the second one, it was almost like they zhuzhed up the mine just to party. Like, that was yeah. it. It was like HGTV hits <laughs> hits the mines. Yeah. And, and they, they stayed yeah. kind of in the same place in the mine. It was always, yeah. in, in the second film, it was always like this one particular area, I felt like, that That's was sort of well Because none of them would actually know what to do if they got further into the mine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, But it also gave you more potential suspects to be the killer. Whereas in the remake, you got two. And I'm like, yeah, come yeah. on, that's not fun. I want to, <laughs> I want to guess who's behind the mask. Speaking to the mine, I just had, I just remember this amazing part in the original film that I will give to you guys for, you know, one I, of the I best I think you're moments. liking this more than I you know. say. So how about the point when, like, they can no longer get out of the mine shaft? They're literally <laughs> standing next to the ladder and they go, what will we do? <laughs> Well, they do realize they can climb out of the ladder. I know, but, but the body just... falls down, it's... and then they're like, yo, we shouldn't it's... go up there because the body just fell. I know, but like, if Captain Obvious were in, ever in a film, it was in that moment, like standing next to that ladder. Whatever shall we do but to get out of here? That's the charm of this fl- slasher film. That, that was a good moment. Yeah. yeah. I'll give you that. And There's I don't a care, lot of good moments. Yo, I don't care saying. if bodies are raining down on me. I'm like, just keep climbing, climbing. But if you climbing. go up there, you'll become one of the bodies. No, I'll just let, I'll let a couple more people go ahead of me. <laughs> Lord. <laughs> Apparently, my girlfriend carries a knife under her pillow, so hey, you know. <laughs> Send her up there first. <laughs> yeah. That's love. Yeah. <laughs> 
so tropes like place, <laughs> the terrible place. It's a working mine in 1981. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the danger and part of what causes the damage. In 2009, well, I mean, the whole subplot of Tom selling, wanting to sell the mine, he says at some point... Those mines have been outdated since I was a kid. So we're in like post-manufacturing Pennsylvania here. Yeah. But there's also not like one isolated terrible place because you have the hospital, you have the mines, you have the home of, you know, the cop. The motel. Yeah, the motel. (laughs) Don't forget forget the motel. motel. So it's really the shifting landscape that I think is something very reflective of modern slashers as opposed to previous slashers. Yeah, and I don't know if that dispels the power of the terrible image or just terrible place or just suggests that the terrible place is everywhere. To me, it's it's bad. Like, it it dissolved the the power of the terrible place. Yeah, and I think it also makes it more likely that innocence, quote-unquote, will be harmed if you have the shifting landscapes. I mean, if you have it centralized into one place, chances are it's going to be people who are participants in some way, shape, or form, even if it's just by heritage and living there. Whereas if it's constantly in these different locales, I mean, we see it in the hospital where they say, you know, he killed men, women, and children. And I think especially anytime you invoke children, yeah. that's like, ooh, that guy's super bad. Yeah. He killed 22, 22 men, women, and children. He was a busy guy. <laughs> busy, busy guy. I did have a bone to pick with both of these films, and that would be The Final Girl, of which there really is there not really is a not final girl. One. No, they tried. Um, but in the original, I mean, you do get a sense of like the early iteration of The Final Girl in that she survives just long enough to be rescued by the man which happens in actually the remake as well. That is it was not, upsetting. It's, it's, <laughs> she it's didn't not, bite back at all. Not final girl behavior. No. no. Plus she's married with a child. Yes, yeah, a creepy true. child. Yeah. A creepy, likely traumatized yeah. child. Because he does watch the nanny get it. So, you know, if it's yeah. echoing the original, then that lays the groundwork for psychopathic tendencies. But then if how do we know? Because with the remake, all you have to do is be accused of murders... And That's then you, right. you go crazy. So maybe now Axel's going to go nuts, too. You never know. And also, I have to say, like, when we're, since we're speaking about tropes, the killer of the slasher is usually psychosexually disturbed. Mm-hmm. And there, there wasn't any sexual right. motivation on the killer's part here. Yeah. And um, the females certainly were not androgynous. Going yeah, back to your final girl. Yeah, I mean, we have very, very, very sort of solid gender boundaries in both of these films. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. there's there's no ambiguity, there's no crossing, there's no masculine final girl or feminized killer. And we also have two types of killers. You have the myth killer, and then you have the actual slasher killer, which I did think was interesting. Because you have basically like two narratives running parallel to each other. So the person that's actually the myth killer doesn't really play that heavily into the film. Only in the original because he's an actual person. Whereas in the remake, he's the spiritual guide, if you will. I guess so, yeah. Yeah, we actually had had some, there was some confusion among us as to at what point Harry Warden died in the first film. Harry Warden in both films, he's buried alive in the the mining accident. Um, and in the second one, yeah, he kills the other five men to survive. I didn't know if he died after that. After that, Or if yeah. it was a year after the carnage yeah. and then it was the slasher killer. Yeah. I, guess that's what I don't know. I didn't 
I wasn't sure either until I went back and I started to read like plot summaries. So the plot summary says that it's Harry Warden that wakes up in the hospital in room one year later and kills the 22 men, women, and children. Mm, okay. Yes. And so yes. it must be after that that the, the, the townspeople kill him and Tom develops a, yeah, like a split personality. But believing Tom went into the, med the asylum directly after the first incident. Because they, say he because they say he disappeared right after. Okay. And then they find out that he went to an asylum. You're right. Maybe that's kind of interesting, actually. I mean, I never really thought about this, but maybe it's kind <coughs> of interesting that we don't know exactly when these two people merge. Like when mm. Harry Warden becomes Tom, Tom becomes Harry. But then who is supposedly trying to kill Tom? No one. No one's trying to kill Tom. <laughs> Not in the remake. In the remake, when the cops... Shoot the guy oh, as yes. he's about to attack Tom with the pickaxe. In the mine. In the mine. They're like, put it down, Harry, or whatever. What's his name? <clears throat> they're like, put it down, put it down. And then they shoot him. That's why I thought he's he died. still alive. He I thought they we see him, him run off. But he's attacking Tom. But that's So he's got it. So, that, okay, that is him then at that point. But that's in the very first narrative frame, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Because that's the only time that I was thinking that the cops were kind of effective in that film, too. Like, well, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh, no, that that's the 10 years later. No. No, that's when they're still young, because that's before Axel's even a cop. He's still a little kid. Yeah, that's right. And then you flash forward to, like, well, yeah. 19. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wait a minute, isn't he in high school? <laughs> but then that's when you flash forward, and I remember seeing the first scene of him as the cop, and I was like, oh, well, that was fast. And I was like, he still looks like a baby, but... So that was my question. Like, when did the police officers actually kill the real Harry Warden? Because they actually do shoot him in the high school and the, part. In the first narrative, yeah. the high school part. But they shoot at him. But doesn't he run off down into the mine? I'm almost positive. Though maybe I'm thinking of the first film. I, I, yeah, I don't remember. But I didn't think he was dead regardless at that yeah. point. No, he I didn't think dead. he was dead, but I thought they may have like buried him alive. Like, I thought they had him. Because where would they have, when would they have gotten him in the second iteration? Like, when, after the massacre? You're right. You're right. No, I think you're right. I think it's in the first, it's 1997, the opening, when they're having the party in the mine. They're shooting at Harry Warden as he's about to kill Tom. I think they go get him then and kill him. And so, do, like, so, a whole Frankenstein thing. Like, they yeah. just go for him. And... Mm. So I do think the hospital scene a year later has got to be Tom. That's what Henninger. I thought. But I guess it could be either. And maybe that does make it more interesting. So what do we think about Valentine's Day horror? <laughs> no. <laughs> Are you done with your tropes? Um, I think, yeah, I've covered most of them. Because we, at some point we need to get into this mask discussion that we started before, <laughs> before yeah. we started this whole entire podcast. We started to have this discussion, and I couldn't even continue that's the conversation. That's what I should record as the pre-discussion. Yes, we should start recording the pre-discussion, because that's where it really happens. <laughs> and um, so Liz brought up this fantastic point of discussion, and I couldn't it's even research. engage in it. because I was, I was afraid that I would, I would use all my good stuff then. So I, I need to get into this now. So Liz, please drop me some of your knowledge. Okay, again, this is based on research. This is not just my own pontification, all right? So in both, you have the mining masks, right? It obscures the face of the killer. So research suggests that dying by someone wearing a mask is way worse than someone that you know 
and you can see their actual <laughs> physical face. And the reason for this is, ladies, is because the face provides a lot of information, right? So that's how we recognize people. It gives us information. Masks obscure that information. So if you're lying on bed one night and you wake up and someone's standing <laughs> over you with a butcher knife, you're going to be less afraid if it's your mother than you are if it's somebody you don't know who's wearing, wearing a, mask. a mask. Or someone you do know wearing a mask. Exactly, because yeah. you can't tell because yeah. you don't have that information. I'm just saying. It's science. So you're more scared by somebody you know. No, you're more scared you're by more someone scared in, by a mask in a mask. Because it obscures any of the information that you can glean from the face. So this adds to Liz's peaceful ways of dying. 100%. So first of all, I also want to add to when she said that this is based on research, there was air quotes around that. No, no, it's real research. I think it's like in psychology today. I didn't write it down because I didn't think either one of you would take me seriously enough to actually talk about it. But it's it's out there. In the show notes, I'm linking to it. Yeah, we're going to link to this, guys. And then apologies all around No, I'm going to. We're going to have to also on the side, I'm going to take a picture of myself with my air quotes up. And that's going to be my scholarly scholarly contribution to that but i i don't know it if either sense, is going to be think about it i don't know if either is going to be less concerning to me if somebody's standing over me trying to if i wake up to somebody trying to kill me mask or no mask like i don't care if it's you yeah, will have terror. i focus on the knife yeah. not the mask yes. or lack thereof you will have terror in both scenarios but the terror is exacerbated by the fact that you don't know who's behind the mask so you have a question that lingers as well as having the fear. Whereas, if it's your mama and she's got a, you're like, okay, I know her, and I know she's gonna hit me with that knife. Yeah, but I, I guess feel on, like this on makes some total level, sense. on some level, like, yo, I'm gonna have that WTF moment. If, well, it's, sure. if it's somebody in my family, like, yo, I know that we have our problems, but like, I, I mean, if if I wake up and mom's like over me with a knife, like, I think I'm adding a level of confusion onto this that was not there before. Like, if it's a mask, I'm just like, yo, I'm going to I'm die. No, I'm going to die. No, because your lizard brain recognizes Nancy, right? And so at some level, you think maybe I can appeal to her because I know her. It's all about the lizard brain. That, too, is science. There, There is science to the lizard brain. There's science there to what I'm saying, to the too. Brain. I'm just saying, I'm like, somebody with it. a mask shows up on top of me. I'm just going to surrender. I, I give up. Like, I'm good. But I'm you good. would probably try to appeal to your mother. Yeah, you would. You would. <laughs> You would appeal to your mom. I don't wear somebody don't behind a mask. Like you're, it's either going to be fight or flight, like right out of the gate. Whereas with your mom, there might be a pause where you're like, but wouldn't that hinder your reptile brain? Because if somebody comes at you with a mask and you have yeah. no recognition and you are so scared, yeah, that would help your reptile brain. It would activate your yeah your fight or flight. Yeah, it would activate. So you're actually or... better off if somebody has a mask. Well, no, because there's still the. I'm just saying, like your fear, your fear stimuli response yeah. is decreased if you recognize the person. I'm not saying that you're like so totally like chill with someone you. waking up and saying it, it them. could work against you. That would you. work against you. Yeah. Like you might not realize how much yeah. of a threat it yeah. is, and then yeah. that works against you. Yeah, yeah, but I still yeah. feel so like it's going to be peaceful. It's going to be because if anyone's going to try to flay me, I want to know them. Do you? I do. Do you? I've given this a lot of thought. I'm just thinking about what kind of mask I would prefer somebody to be wearing if they killed me. Like, I'm just thinking, like, because I don't want something playing like strangers. Like, yeah, that's creepy, but, you know, you just throw a potato sack on your head. That shows a lack of effort. So 
I mean, I'm looking, you know, like bunny kill kill kind of thing. Like, I don't know. In these movies, I do think like the mining masks yeah. are particularly terrifying because they also like sort of send the suggestion like running out of air, like you have that breathing yeah. mechanism. Yeah. Like they're scary. And masks. that sound is in there too. You yeah. can hear them breathing. It's almost like, you know, all those shark films when you hear the scuba. Right. Yeah. That is a little disconcerting. It's like the stalking aspect of it. One thing that supports your point. Liz, from like a film standpoint, like it's always really struck me at the beginning of Scream where Drew Barrymore gets killed. Like the last thing she does as she's dying is she lifts up the mask. Like mm-hmm. she kind of needs to know because yeah. you said like if someone yes. is kills you and they have a mask on, like as well as everything else, you've got the who are you mm-hmm. question. The Scooby-Doo moment. The reveal. Although that is one time, too, that I will not say that a mask is scary. Part of the reason I did (laughs) not like the Scream movies is because that film was just so dumb to me. Wait, I'm sorry. You don't like the Scream movies? No. Did you not know this? None of them? Are you serious? You didn't know that? I didn't know that. I've been pretty vocal about that. Yeah, I don't care. I only listen like the I we need you. to do a podcast on all of them. I would still do that. Oh, they're, 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 watch they're, all. they're worthy <laughs> films to, to discuss still. But no, I, I thought that the mask was just so silly, I think, that that's why I, mm. I couldn't get past. No. I had a really hard time with that because it just, I was like, this is comical. Mm. Like, it made I more sense when they, did the, when they did the scary movie remakes. I was just like, oh, yeah, that makes more sense for the use of that. So maybe I, it, uh, it also plays into it what kind of mask somebody's wearing if yeah. they're trying to kill you. And I, what the the implement is, because I mean, if you have somebody wearing a Mickey Mouse mask and they're just coming at you with an oversized hammer, is that any longer <laughs> as threatening? I like it, that that just sprung to mind. At some point, you might just be like, "Huh." Uh. Yeah, but I feel like a hammer is less... <laughs> oh, here we go. I would rather get it with a hammer than I would a knife. No, thank yes. you. No, Are you kidding thank me? you. No, thank you. A hammer, you. I feel like I have a fighting chance. With a knife, it's a little dicier. Ask a bunch of cattle that question, too, because I, I well, feel so like they, they kind yeah. of... Yeah, I know, but I feel like they, they moved away from just bonking you on the head into pithy. Yeah, but they're in corrals. I mean, I would be like, you know... You'd be dodging moving. a wheel. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, no. Because one blow to the head. I watch Snapped. That stuff doesn't ha- That doesn't always work. Like, it takes multiple blows. Yeah. Like, they'll say, oh, that this, this was a classic case of overkill. They were hitting the head 44 times. And I'm like, yo, no. That seems just, worse to me. Just, like, I feel I like feel you'd like this- be dazed, though, if you get, like, one good shot to the head. I feel like you would be dazed enough that you might not. Whereas with a knife, like, that's depending on where they're hitting. You could really get you could get knifed like forty times and still yeah, but hopefully be too, coherent I, for it. Uh, yeah, but I don't know. I don't know. This takes me back to the whole shark versus crocodile death conversation. That oh we had. yeah. I mean, I just I prefer not to go like by style of Donkey Kong. Where We're some real philosophical the, scholars are, here. Yeah, we are. This is, I mean, this is definitely one of our more scholarly pieces right now, I think. Well, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, <laughs> the the first person that goes into the house is killed with a hammer. A meat, like, is it like uh, a meat mallet or something yeah, like that? Yeah, yeah. Like a tenderizer. Yeah. <laughs> Even st- I don't want that. So just to bring this back to... <laughs> We are celebrating <laughs> Valentine's Day here. So why Valentine's Day? Does that make sense? No, none whatsoever. Because okay. like I said, like in the very, very first film, I, I could not figure out why they called this my blo- bloody Valentine. It's Valentine's Day party. And the town yeah, was called and the town was a... called Valentine's Day. I know. Like, that's so corny. I know. That's but, what's like, great about it. Like legit. Until the last sentence of the film. And I, I think, Dawn, you wrote it down. He was just yeah. kind of like, I'll get you, my pretty. <laughs> Your little dog, too. Oh, my bloody valentine. Sarah, be my bloody valentine. Yeah, and I love his voice. Sarah. 
<laughs> well, I like, okay, can we talk about the ending song, though? Please tell me that both of you listened to yeah. that whole ballad of... I did not. The you didn't listen to the Warden. ballad of Harry Warden? I did I'm not. obsessed with the ballad of you Harry Warden. You may have Warden. to add that. Oh, I'm already audience. looking for it to try and like add it to the cool. intro. I'll have yeah. to. I'll have to listen to it. It's so ridiculous. It basically lays out the entire film. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh. would have made more sense. Yeah, you could have just listened to the ballad. But, but nobody, why nobody Day? answered why they just, why they just have Day? a random Valentine's Day dance, and because the mind blew on that day, and the supervisors were leaving to go to the dance, which. I highly doubt that they would have been invited. Well, but, but it was a community thing. <laughs> it was a community um, thing. I'm just wondering if the Valentine's Day added anything. Like Halloween no. adds to Halloween. Christmas one's day. The Christmas holiday yeah. adds to it as it. well, but not. They, so the super, in the original, the supervisors, you know, were neglectful because they were going to go off to the dance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the mind blows. I get it. But then, like, this guy doesn't even come out until six months later or something like that. Six, or six weeks. weeks later. Yeah, yeah, but his calling card is a heart in a box. Yeah. So in that respect. I wonder if he ate all the chocolates first. I hope so. What a waste <laughs> I mean, of the that chocolates. Seems, yeah. You think about love and then death. But this film has nothing no. to do with no. love. I mean, that's what I want out of my Valentine's Day horror, though. Like, I want to see, like, the love and then just see it, like, viscerated. But you didn't get any of that. You just got the evisceration. Like, they did a better job with prom night. Yes. Yes. Like, that was you taking a sacred event Mm -hmm. and ruining it. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's really no reason why Harry Warden is sending people hearts in Valentine's-shaped boxes. None whatsoever. (laughs) They did that. What's that Brad Pitt movie where they send the head in the box? Oh, Oh, Seven. seven. Yeah. That was... Yeah, there we go. What's in the box? Yeah, here's another thing that's in a box. The heart that's in a box. Good Morning Nancy just did a really good podcast on Seven. People should listen to it. Yeah. It's very good, yeah. That. I don't know. I don't think Valentine's Day really added anything to it other than a vessel for a heart. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's about it. Because you could have <laughs> replaced it. the dance with any other said yeah. dance. Yeah, you could have. It could have just been, yeah, it could have been the apple dumpling festival. <laughs> Maybe that's the point. It kind of shows the meaninglessness of love. Valentine's Day. <laughs> we both love, went to yeah. love. <laughs> and Valentine's it's Day. so messed up. <laughs> do yeah. we recommend them? Yes. I really recommend yes. the first one. I do not recommend the second one. And I conversely recommend the second one. <laughs> But again, it just depends on what you're into. Yeah, like, for sure. If you just want sensationalized, gratuitous, you know, boobs and blood, yeah, yeah, go see the second one with me. I'll, you know, hit me up. We'll do it again. <laughs> um, but the first one, if you want if to you see like a, slow a good, burn, yeah, a good slow burn with some better character development and some plotting points that make actual sense. I didn't <laughs> dig on your movie. <laughs> I'm just saying. And I think both of them have something interesting to say about class consciousness mapped onto mm-hmm. the slasher so and and to yeah. me it makes it's more interesting like there's a reason why people are getting killed it's not just teenagers having sex yeah like, yeah there are bad things going on at the mines so i think next time we're going to be doing some evil children that would be stuff, amazing right? oh i um, hope so prodigy is coming up maybe eli that would be good yeah, yeah. that'd be good that's good to me And just so everyone knows, we are doing a challenge on Instagram for Women in Horror Month. So definitely check that out and friend us there and on Twitter. Is that the right word, friend? I don't even know. I don't know. (laughs) 
check us out on all these, <laughs> these fancy friend follow fairies in the machine things. I don't yeah. know. There's a, something in there. Just, we just run a tight ship, people. <laughs> we do. Yes. Amen. But okay. Well, thanks for listening. We definitely want to hear your thoughts on Valentine's Day horror, and if there are horror films yes. deliberately and exclusively related to Valentine's Day that we should check out, please let us know. Otherwise, I think that's all for us today. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Bye.